0: Hey, what is going on, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. My body wants more sleep, but my pocket wants more money. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking, man?
1: I am I'm really good, um, partially because I'm drinking the yin to the yin and yang of evil twins brewing. Uh, it's, I guess this is the black of the black and tan. Um, oh, do they
0: have two beers that are kind of like paired yes
1: yeah, so they give you this like four pack and it's two yins two yangs and they're like you could mix them you could not mix them ah um,
0: that's what i was gonna ask if you mix them
1: i i didn't mix them because i felt like that was a very
0: risky move uh maybe Whoa, it's maybe universal later. balance mm. that's what that's how it's meant to be Thomas, you're only getting one side you are the yang to my yin oh <laughs> thank you <laughs> Well, I'm not drinking the tan version of that beer, if that's what you're thinking. I just have some spicy, uh, how do you pronounce it, rooibos Ru- 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 tea? I don't know, it's like R-O-O-I-B-O-S. Uh, it's good spicy tea with lots of cinnamon in it. Mm.
1: Sounds and fancy. I'm addicted to it.
0: Yeah, my girlfriend always says I'm weird because I think green tea doesn't taste like anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, it tastes kind of like grass, but it's too weak. So just like give me a cup full of cinnamon and I'm pretty much good to go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, today's catchphrase came from at LJE553 on Twitter. Maybe work on a more pronounceable name, but thank you for your catchphrase. And guys, if you have other catchphrases you want us to read on the show, uh, at Money Matters Man on Twitter is our our Twitter handle and listen money matters at gmail.com is our email address we need catchphrases so send them to us come on we're waiting for them <laughs> anyway guys today on the show we have a guest his name is jonathan murdoch or mordock is that how you pronounce it jonathan mordock yeah thanks mordock perfect uh I, I had it in my head perfectly and then i switched it for the daredevil character's last name <laughs> <laughs> just so close <laughs> you don't happen to be from hell's kitchen are do you uh, no. <laughs> but you you are in New York, right? Because you're a professor at NYU, right?
2: I am a professor at NYU right now. I am talking from the beautiful state of New Jersey, the Garden oh, State.
0: Oh, okay. Are you yeah. like near Hoboken then?
2: Uh, not even close. Yeah, I'm no? in Princeton, New Jersey, um, where I've been spending oh, okay. the year. I, gotcha. I thought that's where
1: all the professors lived, just in the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they every professor <laughs> yeah yeah, they just princeton. all
0: commute from princeton <laughs> how far is that from you andrew
1: uh it's like far i want to say it's like an hour plus on train if i'm lucky
0: gotcha because where you live feels basically like new york city mm. just with a better view of new york city so i, I kind of don't count where you live as truly jersey
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you I'm actually honored to hear that <laughs> No one really Good brags heck? about living in New Jersey
0: I'm just no over comment here that. From me. <laughs> 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 I'm over here in Denver I don't really have a dog in this fight But I don't know All I know is it takes like what 10 minutes to get from the city to your place Something So like that, yeah. it doesn't feel like Truly Jersey <laughs> But anyway so Jonathan you're a professor Over at MIU uh, in what Public policy and economics And you also wrote a book called The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty, which is why we want to talk to you today, because you did a study, which is kind of the underpinning for this book, about how American families deal with financial uncertainty. And I think that's something that's becoming more and more common for a lot of families here in America, uh, especially like for me and Andrew, definitely income uncertainty is a thing because we're entrepreneurs, but even for people with full time jobs it's not necessarily a secure situation. So what was kind of the impetus for the study that you were doing?
2: Yeah. You know, it was exactly what you're, what you're saying is like, it feels like the world has changed a little bit and we want to understand it a bit better. Um, But before I tell you like why we started this um, project, I want to say that this isn't just me. It was like a whole bunch of people who were involved, Mm -hmm. including Rachel Schneider, who wrote the book with me and helped manage this project and all kinds of, foundations, the Ford Foundation, City Foundation, a mid-year network. We all kind of had the sense um, after the recession that, you know, the recession was showing how America had changed. Jobs had changed. You know, people were feeling a little bit more anxious. And it was hard to see from the basic statistics. I mean, Mm -hmm. even today, if you look at you know the jobs numbers, unemployment rate. I think the latest number was four point three percent, which they're saying yeah. is like yeah. the Unemployed. lowest
1: ever. But there's there's like a, a dark story to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like, why is everyone feeling so anxious when unemployment rate looks pretty low? Mm. You know, and part of that is that people have just been discouraged and have, you know, stepped out of the labor market. So the unemployment rate actually looks pretty good. But another part of it is that you know the nature of jobs has really changed, mm-hmm. and Jobs have become less stable. I mean, even when you have a job. So you you know, you know may be a restaurant worker and you show up at the restaurant and your boss says, hey, there's not enough business. You got to go home. Mm. And then yeah. that's going to show up in your paycheck. Right? That's something that wasn't happening a generation ago. And so there's a whole bunch of things like that um, which we thought were important and we wanted to understand. And so we started this project. It was a, it's a little bit crazy. We found... 235 people in different parts of the country who were willing to let us see every single part of their financial lives. So they let us track every dollar of income and spending and borrowing and saving, like everything over an entire year. And the book is a story of some of the people
0: we got to know and how their lives look different from what we imagined. What was your original imagining of what their lives would look like? Was it kind of like based on the older view of the secure job-based lifestyle?
2: Yeah, I think some version of that, right? I mean, most views of, you know, like typical middle-class life is, you know, you start young, you get a good job, you try to, you move up, you earn more, you might have a family, you might buy a house. It's kind of an arc that you're looking toward and a lot of financial advice is organized around that, right? Helping people save for, you know, sending kids to college, buying a home, retiring one day. It's a lot of stuff, and it's all pretty predictable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you're not getting there, the problem, it seems, would be you know, lack of discipline, mm-hmm. too much temptation. Uh, so there's a lot of advice about helping people like follow the path and budget better. But we were seeing a pretty different story. Our story wasn't. You know, so the life was so predictable. We're seeing lots of people who have very unpredictable and uncertain lives. And that just, you know, meant that a lot of traditional advice and ways of seeing the world just got, you know, chucked out the window.
0: Yeah. You know, a lot of my friends coming out of college, um, they were able to find jobs, but a lot of them ended up in jobs that were contract basis. So even if they're working for a big corporation like, um, like Wells Fargo or something, you know they're not full-time employees it's like a contract with maybe a you know a chance at full-time employment afterwards for some of them and i just kind of thought like that that seemed kind of weird for these big corporations to be hiring people in that way but it seems to be like a good example of this sort of shift towards less stability in our economy
2: yeah, it's it's less stability, less less predictability. Like you go into a hotel, you go to the front desk, and you know, often the folks at the front desk aren't actually employed literally by the hotel. There's another company that's employs the folks. Really? Employs people, you know, the the maids. So yeah, the economy's changed in, in lots of ways. A lot of people working for tips, a lot of people working on commission. And even, you know, hourly jobs don't guarantee steady paychecks. So, so how- I I, I no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say. I mean, I, I, we start the book off with a story of a guy named Jeremy that we got to know in Ohio. Lives in a small town in Ohio. You know, a generation ago, he probably would have had a factory job. Now he is a mechanic. He f- works fixing these long haul trucks. You know, those, those mm-hmm. big trucks. And you know, we were visiting one spring day. It was just beautiful. And we're talking to Jeremy's wife, Becky, and Becky was just like in a bad mood. I was like, Becky, you know, what's going on? Why are you in such a bad mood? And she's like, you know, this is a really t- terrible time for us. Spring and the fall, when the weather's really nice, are really hard on the family because Jeremy's paychecks are low. He works on commission, mm-hmm. but when the weather's good, the trucks do much better. Yeah. It's in the summer when the tires are blowing out or the winter when the batteries oh, wow. and the alternators are going, that Jeremy's really busy. He's making a lot more money. And so that family was bearing the weight of the ups and downs of business in ways that, you know, a generation ago, the business actually might have, you know, borne that weight. But increasingly, it's workers who are having to bear the the weight
0: of a lot of risks
2: that are showing up in the
0: economy. And that changes everything financially. So So basically, companies used to insulate their workers from the volatility by just writing off the losses and then, you know, keeping the profits in good times. But now they're just like, well, why do that when we can just hire our workers on contract basis or commission basis and they can bear the brunt of that uncertainty?
2: Yeah, there's a lot more of that going on. That's right. I mean, I don't want to be too rosy about how things used to be because they were always a little bit uh, uncertain. But yeah, it seems like something different has happened. And and again, it's not just. The contract workers, although that's a part of it, it's also, you know, hourly workers who, you know, who are working for, you know, a big box retailer or for um, a restaurant or um, things like that.
1: What kind of people uh, did you include in the study? Because I I know that there were people that were close to the poverty line, but there were also people who were doing generally well. Uh, So, like, what kind of people were involved and how did you select them?
2: Yeah, so the... The folks that we sampled and were included in the study were neither the very poorest nor the very richest. Right? So roughly a quarter were below the poverty line. About half were between the poverty line and twice the poverty line. That's about 50000 bucks, mm-hmm. And then another quarter were beyond that. And what was, what was striking was that we saw this kind of ups and down, this kind of volatility, you know, really across the sample. It was a little bit worse for the poorer part of the sample, but even folks in the middle class um, were experiencing these ups and downs. And what was really cool is that you know we started talking about this stuff early on a few years ago, and other people started listening. And the Federal Reserve, right, the you know mm-hmm. the big government agency, mm-hmm. decided to start asking some questions about this, these ups and downs in their own surveys, which are national, you know, yeah. way more than our two hundred thirty-five households. Um, and they're finding similar things. They found about, in their latest report, about a third of households um, say they have paychecks, which are bouncing notably from month to month. That's a pretty big chunk of America.
1: Wow. Well, that's huge. And and I guess my confusion is, you know, Jack and Jill that make $60,000 a year, I thought they're living it up. I mean, where, where's their issue?
2: So Jack and Jill... Sixty thousand dollars a year. Why? Why are there? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I
1: could understand if there was a family and they were at the poverty line or close to it, you know. And small deviations can really crush uh, their their month, their year, their setup. But you know, people who are making sixty thousand dollars aren't they insulated? I guess from that.
2: I think one of the tricky things is one: the jobs have changed. And so, at $60,000, you could still be working a job, which is fairly variable. And the second thing is is something we haven't really been able to totally piece together, but that when your income is going up and down, no matter how much you're earning, you're also – you're finding it harder to save. You're finding it harder Mm. to protect yourself. And so, there's this connection between the ability to save and this volatility.
0: Just from my own experience, I I mean, I know like my income is wildly variable as an entrepreneur. And I think when your income is very stable, it's easy to get into the habit of putting a certain proportion of that into savings, putting a certain proportion of that over to your debt, et cetera. But when it's volatile, some months it's down. So you're just like, okay, I've got to scrimp and save and I can just cover my expenses. And then the next month seems like, uh, I forget the term, but like, just like, you know, you hit jackpot and you're just like, well, I, I should treat myself maybe. Or maybe you have debt and you have to pay that. So maybe that's also a contributing factor as to why you can't save. I know a lot of uh, my friends out of college have a ton of student debt. So they can't afford to save at this point. They're going to have to wait a few years down the road to do that.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the whole idea of budgeting and the whole idea of saving and you know, making choices, it's happening. You're having to make choices like again and again, month by month. So this idea, you know, that a lot of financial advisors would have, you know, which is, you know, set a budget and be disciplined according to that budget and just kind of like stay on the steady path. Mm -hmm. That's crazy because, you know, your life isn't steady. And so the advice is really, really hard to follow. And it's also wearying and taxing. Mm -hmm. And that's so we're seeing I mean, the Fed survey, you know, which showed all this volatility also showed that because of that volatility. Yeah, about 40% of the households were struggling to pay bills. And that's because, you know, that that down month, you know, like Becky and Jeremy, when, you know, spring rolls around, they just don't have the money to do what they could, um, you know, in those months when they have more money.
1: You know, there are a lot of people listening who have difficulty sticking to a budget, doing consistent, you know, savings for retirement, things like that. And for the broad numbers wealthy and otherwise, uh, the income inconsistency. And I know you had uh, mentioned uh, in some videos that, you know, maybe bonuses, you know, create fluctuations or, you know, more Fridays or less Fridays in a month. So the, it, it people aren't feeling like they're a failure because it's actually a broad, like a common thing. My, my question to you is, uh, what can these people do? Like, I, I don't think, like, resolving to uh, you know I, I don't know
2: yeah so it's it's really interesting to see what people are doing because um, mm-hmm. you know folks understand this now becky and jeremy they were trying to save up for this i mean they knew the problem they saw it you know they knew winter was going to be good they knew summer was going to be good they knew spring and fall mm-hmm. um we going to be worse you know income wise so um you know they were planning, and they they tried to save. It was really hard. What Becky and Jeremy ended up doing was just like buying lots of meat and storing up in, in their freezer, and buying lots of shampoo and buying lots of toothpaste and storing up, um, you know, in the in their closet so they had stuff for later. Now that's not really? a great solution. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's not exactly what you would advise, but uh, that was a big part of their. Uh, what they were doing other people were doing things which were I think like things you actually might recommend like uh, there's a woman named Janice she was she's amazing she's about 60 years old she's a card dealer she works at a casino down in Mississippi mm-hmm. and you know she's working on tips so summer the casino is full lots of folks are coming in and gambling she's making a lot of money because of it but you know September comes, Folks are going back to – the kids are going back to school, so people aren't gambling so much. December comes, Christmas time; um, It's really pretty quiet at the casino. So she's also got these ups and downs. And what she does is during the summer, she puts her money in a bank that's about an hour south of her. It's okay. a credit union. It has really lousy ATM um, systems, really l- lousy hours. She even chopped up her ATM card so that she wouldn't be tempted to – you know, use the ATM and get the money out. Mm-hmm. And so she knows that the money's pretty safe down there, but if she needs it, she can still get it. She's got to, you know, get in the car and drive an hour, which isn't easy.
0: Uh, so she intentionally makes it hard to spend money during those tough times.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. And,
2: and the trick that we find a lot of people, you know, using is finding some way to balance structure and flexibility, so Mm -hmm. discipline and flexibility. So a lot of, you know, pundits, advisors will say, you know, lock up your money. You need commitment and discipline. And that's a pretty, you know, good piece of advice, except Mm -hmm. when you live in an uncertain world, Mm -hmm. you can really get stuck. So you need to have some flexibility, right? So we see again and again, Becky and Jeremy, you know, they put money in retirement accounts, for example, Mm -hmm. but then they, ended up taking some of it out when Jeremy switched jobs so you need some structure but you also need flexibility and you know what we saw is people you know doing all kinds of things to do that so Janice's way of doing it was the bank that was an hour away mm-hmm. other people would give money to their like there's a guy we knew Robert Robert um he's an i.t worker he's got a bank account but he saves in his mother's bank account and oh, we're like, we're like, what are you doing that for? And he's like, yeah, you know, my mother, she's like Fort Knox; she's gonna hold that money. She's not gonna let me have it. But Robert knows if he needs it, she'll give it to him.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, that's, that seems like a pretty good solution. Definitely better than just buying a bunch of bulk meat and <laughs> saving yeah, for, for the spring months. Yeah, I mean, because that that immediately didn't make sense to me. Because why wouldn't they just save the money up? that they could use to buy that meat. Are they afraid that they're going to use it on something they don't need during yeah, those good Exactly. Months?
2: They were finding that if, when they put money in the bank, they were just t- withdrawing it too easily to okay. go for a meal or something like that. So that's the problem. You need some structure. You need some discipline mm-hmm. and, you know, putting your money into shampoo and meat, you know, was a good way to protect them from using that money to then, you know, go to the movies.
0: Yeah, but- that makes sense. It's my uh, one of my college friends had this concept he called the spending firewall, and he would like put money into savings accounts or just accounts where it was really inconvenient for him to get it out, so it would be tough to spend it. Because in college, it can be pretty volatile. You get your student loan payout maybe at the beginning of the semester, and then you kind of have to make that last until the end of it. If you don't have a part time job, or maybe you do have a part time job, but it's you know the hours are kind of volatile because your class schedule is also volatile. So. Yeah, I think finding a way to discipline yourself, but also make that money available if you need it is important.
2: Yeah. I and mean, it turned out as we talked to folks that the financial industry doesn't really provide great products that mm-hmm. do that for you. There's probably some, you know, profit opportunity to figure out some way to do it. But right now, accounts are either too, you know, rigid, you know, like a retirement account in which you're totally locking up your money, or yeah you flexible and make the money too easily available.
0: So basically right. we need some sort of bank account where you like, you have to go on the Susie Orman show and have <laughs> her yell at you for half an hour before you can <laughs> get your money out. <laughs> yeah. So you're just like, yeah, I really, I really need to buy a boat. It's like I will starve without this boat because I need a fish you see. And then she says no. <laughs> so you Maybe can't there's get it out. Opportunity for people whose job it is to yell at you. Just somebody like Andrew's at a desk who gives you a stink eye. Before you beat <laughs> money out. Yeah. <laughs> and what are you going to use this for? Yeah. So do you think that's the main issue? It's just like a self-regulation issue combined with volatility over time. Or is there something else that's playing a part? I mean, there are lots of parts to it. I think that's
2: that's one big part of it. And it so it's self-regulation, but yeah, with this really underlying um, you know, difficult, fundamentally difficult problem. The other part, you know, is that it's not just income, it's also expenses. And so mm-hmm. you've, you've got, you know, your car breaks down, you've got a health problem. We saw lots of people, you know, when they're choosing new health plans, sometimes under Obamacare, you know, they're naturally, because they don't have a lot of money, they're often choosing plans with high deductibles. Oh, and yeah. You know, they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. But it's also, that meant they were, you know, ending up with $500 or more, you know, out of pocket. Um At times when they really couldn't afford it, so we've also got a set of issues around that on the spending side and yeah that's what's, that's what's really rough is that you've got these spending shocks together with the income shocks, and they're you know not really lining up well
0: so among the people who were the most successful at dealing with this, what did you see them doing other than you know buying huge quantities of meat or locking their money up with their mom's <laughs> bank account because <laughs> i mean it's it's a tough thing to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I got to say the folks who didn't have kids had it easier because they could discipline themselves better. When you've got okay. kids, it's harder to really rein things in. So that's there's, there's not a piece of financial advice attached to that. It's just an observation.
0: Mm. Um, Is it just harder to say no to your kid when they want the Nerf gun, 5,000 Ultra Blaster?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I have so there's that closet. version of it, right? Which is kind of like, come on, you should say no. But there's yeah. another version of it, which is like, which is more constructive, which is that you want your kids to, you know, have the opportunities that other kids have. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure that, you know, they've got access to the internet and they've got, um, you know, clothes and whatever they need, you know, stuff to go on school field trips and be mm-hmm. involved in clubs and stuff like that. You know, they just need resources and they need to eat and they need all that stuff. So you can't, well, you might deny yourself some stuff, you know, your kids, that's your investment in the future.
0: And, um, mm. So there, there, there are reasons beyond the fancy shoes. But I do remember reading an article recently. Uh, I think it was, it was by a dad, but he had done some research that showed that I think it was like 40% of Americans couldn't handle a $400 emergency. And One of the big reasons for that is a lot of Americans are sacrificing their own savings to pay for kids things or to create a college fund for their kids or pay for their college kids or their kids college from out of pocket. And they aren't thinking about their own retirements or just their own ability to pay off a big expense that comes up. So that's that's a big part of it as well.
2: Yeah, it's that that was that's a really devastating number. That was from a Fed survey. I think the original number was something like 47% of Americans couldn't come up with 400 bucks in an emergency
1: mm-hmm.
2: easily. So they might like borrow, a, you know, sell something or
0: borrow to come up with the money, but they didn't have $400 in a savings account um, to pay for it. When you were doing this study, did you find a lot of the families were paying for kids' college funds or things like that? Was that causing a lot of that spending volatility?
2: It was less college funds and more just, you know, the normal expenses of of having kids. Um, okay. There's also a lot of things, just you know, keeping a car up. One of the things which has happened over the last few decades, you know, as you know, is like housing prices have gone up and health mm-hmm. costs have gone up and um, and school costs, transportation costs, um, and that's you know made it a lot harder for households that are kind of living on the financial edge.
0: So, yeah, and I, wages really haven't kept pace, have right. they?
2: Not really. So, after inflation, things have been pretty stagnant. Mm-hmm. But, you know, inflation is sort of an average measure. And there are particular spending categories like housing and transport and health, which have gone up faster than the average of inflation. And okay. those things can really um, catch you, you know, when you've got a crisis. But it, I want, want to get back to something you said earlier, you know, mm-hmm. which is like, what are people doing? And one thing that I thought was pretty smart that some folks were doing was splurging, but doing it really deliberately and putting a putting a fence around it.
0: Okay.
2: So there's this woman, Rose Vargas, got to know in California. And, you know, she knew that she had to really cut back. She'd had a house that got foreclosed on. She was living in a trailer because they were really cutting back. And, you know, that was hard on the whole family. So Her husband turned out he's a mechanic, he's really talented, he fixed motorcycles, and so he had the side job. And so they dedicated that money to splurges. And so they they did it deliberately, and they had a good time. And that allowed them to feel better about then having to tighten their belts all the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. And we saw a lot of folks had difficulty, you know, like keeping things in balance when they weren't doing something like that. They were splurging, just sort of in the in the moment, with whatever the money they had on, had on time. Yeah. But what the Vargas's were doing was saying, "Hey, we're not going to deny ourselves and pretend we don't want to like go out and see movies and you know do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to celebrate it, but we're going to like keep it within
0: bounds and make that part of our plan." So the side job was sort of a way of compartmentalizing their income and then dedicating the main income to the main expenses and that side income to fun.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like So okay. their idea was the splurge would help them be more disciplined. It's yes. it sort of counterintuitive, but it totally made sense for them. And we saw again and again that folks who weren't doing that were just sort of
0: ending up slipping mm-hmm.
2: um, into well, splurges does make as they sense. regretted.
0: When, when you look at research on other things like, uh, like procrastination or even like um, – knee surgery, rehab, the people that pre-plan things like that are more successful. Like with procrastinators, the people that say, all right, I know that I'm probably going to run out of attention in half an hour or an hour. So in an hour, I'm going to let myself go play a video game or go do something fun. Those people are usually better at regulating how much time they spend procrastinating rather than the people who just say, I'm going to study and just keep going all day until they eventually tire out and, you know, waste a lot more time. Yeah, that's me. (laughs) That- <laughs> Honestly, that's me too. Um, I'm not so good at planning out my procrastination, yeah. even though I've read those studies.
2: <laughs> yeah. no, Some to hard. aspire to. <laughs> that's the thing. This is hard. I mean, I think that was the big lesson. The biggest lesson overall was like, this is really hard, what folks are yeah. trying to do. And it's harder than I think a lot of financial advisors imagine.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, from your perspective, being able to see how people do these things if somebody doesn't have a side job, and I mean, you, Andrew, you know, we're huge on side jobs mm-hmm. and entrepreneurial ventures and all sorts of stuff here on this show. But if you do just have like one income source, but you want to be able to replicate this great ability to self-regulate, but also be able to have fun, what sort of structure should you build up in your personal finances? Yeah, I mean, I guess what one idea would be to
2: You know, have a separate savings account or even a, you know, an envelope at home, the old envelope method, something Mm -hmm. where the the money's walled off and it's in a place, you know, you use the word compartmentalized. You just need some way to compartmentalize and it could be some, you know, fancy digital solution. There are apps that would do this, but it could just be the old envelope in the drawer.
0: Andrew, did not we interview the CEO of some of some app that lets you like save up money automatically for like fun goals like that?
1: Yeah, uh, it's actually Remember super the- popular. It's called Digit, and I guess they use that's right. uh, machine learning based on the spending that you have, and they just kind of so- like socks them away. Uh, but you know what I'm really interested in is in in your research, you talked about uh, these people who are unbanked. And I guess I didn't really get that, that like a bank wouldn't let you open an account or that people weren't using bank accounts. And so the whole compartmentalizing piece doesn't work if you don't have a place or multiple places to put it. So who who are these people Like, and, and why is this a thing? Or like what can we do to get them bank
2: accounts? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because – I haven't looked at the book for a, a little bit, but I don't remember. You did write it, much. right? Uh, <laughs> mostly, yeah. <laughs> no, but the unbanked thing is really important. I, I, I'm glad you raised it. Um, we didn't actually talk about it too much, but um, I wish we had. So this is good. Um, there, I think the latest numbers, and they come from the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, have that 7% of American adults don't have... Bank accounts, seven percent. Wow, right? Um, and so that seems pretty small. And then people say, "Well, that's not a big deal. Let's just talk about you know issues with people who do have bank but that's accounts." But it's got to be like twenty million people or something.
0: That's a lot of people, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of people. And it turns out that if you look at say folks who are uh, earn under thirty thousand dollars, mm. like rather than all of America, I think the the rate of being unbanked is something like twenty percent. So it can be pretty wow. high in some populations. So what can you do? I think some of the cool stuff that's happening is, you know, developing simple ideas like, you know, prepaid debit cards. You can do a lot of stuff on a debit card. Mm-hmm. A prepaid debit card. Um, get your income there, get your salary there, um, you know, create various apps that connect to that. Uh so a lot of folks are doing something like that, um, instead of having a traditional relationship with a bank. Um and the other thing, credit unions are moving into some of these territories and doing really, really good work in communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, I think the bigger thing is that even folks with banks don't necessarily have great services or products, and that you know that covers a much, much, much bigger. What you know, do you part mean when you income. say
1: that? Like, what what uh, services do they need that they they don't have access to?
2: Well, for example, I mean. There are, a lot of folks are, you know, face overdraft fees and other fees, credit mm-hmm. card fees, which are really out of control. So they got products, but the products are designed often to catch people and end up, you know, as a profit They're almost like
1: the- predatory products where they yeah. know that these people are going to overdraw So They have like punitive fees.
0: Yeah. I remember exactly. there was one, uh, there was one part when I was reading the big short where they, I think they were in like Vegas talk talking about that conference they went to and some CEO was there and he got asked like, why doesn't your bank offer free checking? And he's like, because free checking is a tax on poor people like through overdraft fees, because like if you have a free checking model, you have a a big enough percentage of people who constantly overdraft, you charge them your fees, you make more money than you would charging everybody, you know, a few bucks a, a month for that checking account.
1: Wow. That's kind of messed up.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea there is that a like a bank account that has a reasonable f- charge on it would do better than a free account mm-hmm. with big fees that keep on tripping you up.
0: Yeah, because yeah. I mean, if you think about it from the bank's perspective, if if they're making money from the fees, then where's the incentive at? It's yeah. it's in a it's in a area that doesn't serve the customer; it actually hurts them. So, and I mean, it's easily justified. Because you can say, oh, well, it's their responsibility to not overdraft and check their balances. And I mean, yeah, you can say that. But But the fact of the matter remains like the incentive is there for the customer to overdraft rather than for you to serve them and make money because they're paying you to serve them.
1: You know, I'm not even sure I agree with that because I think that if you just charge a nominal fee on the account. You could follow like the Wells Fargo strategy and just sign people up for the accounts without their, uh, <laughs> without them being willing. You know, you make like a ton of money that way. Wait, um, what is this? You you didn't hear about the whole Wells Fargo thing where they just signed their customers up for accounts that they weren't even aware of? No, and they were getting fees and stuff.
0: Yeah. Oh my god. And they were, oh and they were literally bad stuff.
1: Yeah, they were in- incentivizing their employees to do this
0: essentially.
2: Yeah. They got caught, and they're paying heavily, yeah, that's uh,
0: crazy, yeah,
2: but so the thing on the fees is that you know, getting back to the the book and the study is that in a world of instability where your paycheck is bouncing up and down, you know you're just much more likely to hit those moments when mm-hmm. you're overdrafting or you know just running out of money by accident, and that's you know that's why this strategy is kind of nefarious, but why banks are using it much more,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think free checking has been a thing for so long that there's almost like this revulsion to paying for your checking account. Yeah. But, I mean, if you if you frame it in your head as like, it's a service because I store my money in a secure place, it's insured, and heck, it even makes a little bit of interest, not very much, but I'm willing to pay for that. And my, my, my boss can direct deposit money into it, I can automatically pay my bills, which will help me to self regulate on my budget a little bit more. Like if it's thirty bucks a year, that's money well spent, especially if it's gonna keep you from, you know, if you have a maybe three overdrafts in a year, that's probably a hundred dollars right there. Yeah, more. Yeah. Or more. I don't even know what they're charging for overdraft fees these days. Yeah.
2: So. No, it's about that. It's about thirty five
0: a hit. That's what I thought. Yeah, was. So yeah. one of
2: the interesting things that we saw households, you know, trying to figure out was when they were getting Um, caught was Mm -hmm. whether to use the overdraft as a kind of loan deliberately, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of going to the payday lender or instead of, you know, not paying the utility bill and then getting that cut off and having to pay a reconnection fee, which would be bigger. So sometimes Mm -hmm. people are gaming these fees, but they're, um, but they're expensive.
0: Interesting. So what happens when an overdraft happens? Like you, you overdraft. Obviously, the it's not like a check bouncing. The money does get put toward whatever expense you were trying to pay, but then you have to pay the fee later and get your account back up to zero. Is that what it is?
2: Yeah. And what can happen is if you have another bill that comes in, you know, it's taken out of your account, and you're still in overdraft status, you'll get hit with another fee. So oh, okay, it can add up pretty quickly. It's not very transparent, and and that's a big part
0: of the. So it's not the- like the debit card will just reject the transaction. Right, which I guess I figured that's what it would do. At least maybe the second right. time, but it isn't doing that. So basically it's just letting the fees rack up and then people are in a situation where you got to build your bank account back up to zero and pay these fees.
2: Yeah, I mean you can get plans with protection, you yeah. know, d- to deal with some of this, but but yeah, that's the the element of it. I mean it's Okay. Banks are trying to figure out how to do better, but um but
0: a lot of folks you know, are getting caught. Yeah. um,
2: With these kind of fees.
0: And I guess my immediate reaction is, you know, obviously if you can find a bank with a better product or better service, go to that. But, um, I mean, the easy solution is just like do whatever you can to build up a small emergency fund first and foremost, even if it means sacrificing a little bit of that splurge money for a while. If you've got that, then you've got a buffer for overdraft fees or for something that comes up pop tire whatever it may be yeah
2: yeah definitely an emergency fund can um, be hugely helpful and i got to say one of the things getting back to old yeah you know, susie orman i think when she talks about emergency funds if you read her her books or listen watch her on tv you know she's talking about like 8 months of income and other folks <laughs> talk about 6 months of income or 3 months of income
0: and yeah, to say, say that.
2: <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's just we like, say like five hundred bucks. <laughs> five hundred bucks sounds yeah, like a month of income or half a month of income can really do a lot. So yeah. I, sometimes I feel like this advice. Well, you know, I'm sure Susie Orman, she's got all the best intentions, mm. um, but it ends up, you know, being such a high bar that a lot of folks say, "Look, right. that I can't even think about that."
0: So well, let me know what you think about the advice we usually give out then. I'd be curious. So what we usually tell people uh, for like our, our basic money one on one advice is build up that emergency fund, 500 bucks maybe. And then the second priority uh, is get your checking account up to about three months expenses. So that way you do have you've got a buffer like your checking account is kind of like this revolving resource that is never getting close to zero. And then you can start thinking about accelerating debt payoff or um, investing in the market, those kind of things. And I mean, like, I I guess I would modulate that a little bit with, like, you know, once you've established that emergency fund, your next goal is to get up to that three months expenses threshold in your checking account, but maybe a percentage of what you make does go towards splurges. You don't have to be totally just, like, sprinting towards that with no regard to enjoyment of life. Right.
2: I, I guess, so you're saying then take care of debt?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, Andrew, I, you you taught me this when I came onto the show, I think. So, this is kind of, like, your idea uh, initially. But as I understand it, the idea is, like, establish that emergency fund and get your checking account up to three times your monthly expenses, like, your minimum monthly expenses, before you start uh, paying down debt faster than your, your minimum payments or investing in the market.
1: Well, so, I, I guess I, I saw it in reverse because, say, you paid, like – Two thousand dollars in to like say you had like ten thousand dollars in debt, and you're on a ten thousand dollar credit limit, and you put two thousand mm-hmm. in, um, and then all of a sudden it's like oh shit, you need the money now. Well, you were at ten before, so you could pull the money back out in your debt, but it's like really costly to like float these twenty percent interest rates or six even is is a lot. But uh, yeah, you know, student loans think- maybe are a different story depending on the rate. Well, that's the thing.
0: If I go and dump my entire bank account into my car loan, and then tomorrow I have to pay a down, or I have to pay like a, um, you know, a health bill, that money's gone. I can't just go to my car dealer and be like, "Hey, can I have my overpayment back?" It's gone. And it's great I have less of a car payment balance, but now I don't have enough money to pay that new bill that's come up.
1: Well, the thing is, so the car payment, your interest rate's probably like one. Yeah, that's really
0: low. I'm just saying, like any any kind of debt that isn't a revolving line of credit, as well. You know, if you accelerate debt payment before you have a good threshold of of you know of savings that you can draw upon for any emergencies, you're just like you're asking for trouble. So, at least in my in my mind,
1: I yeah. I really want to know what Jonathan thinks because I see him shooting me evil eyes, <laughs> yeah. and and I mean, John, uh, Thomas doesn't have video up, so I'm pretty sure the evil eyes are directly at me. <laughs> Tell me,
2: I, you know it, it. Well, I get part of it is like it depends on how long it takes you to build up three months of, um, of savings, right? It's mm-hmm. only three months. No, so, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's <laughs> true. No, but if that takes you two years to like build that up, right? That's mm, like that's two true, years yeah. Letting your debt just. Amount so that could be a hugely costly um, piece of advice. So I guess I, I, you know, you don't want to. Well, you might want to. Well, I think debt's got to be paying down debt's got to be a bigger priority. I mean, it's so costly at the interest rates um, we're seeing. So, but it's I like the idea of you know building up a short-term emergency saving fund like five hundred bucks. I got to say, I mean, a lot of folks also that we got to know, they're not doing this on their own. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when they get into trouble, the car breaks down, you know, they'll often go to a parent or brother or sister or friend for help. And so there's this whole network of people. I mean, the biggest thing that folks do, you know, apart from putting money on a credit card, um, putting bills on a credit card would be to get a loan from a friend or relative yeah, and so you know you should build that into these strategies, and you know maybe it does make sense then to draw down your debt, and if you get into trouble, you know you know that there's some other resources out there you can tap if you really need them. So right.
1: I think one of the like I want to I don't want to say obvious because I actually don't agree with it, but you know if you open your mailbox, chances are there's like a credit card offer in there like regardless of how much money you make. And I'm sure the people in the hardest situations have the most opportunities to take really expensive debt. And so I guess my question to you is, are they aware of things like Lending Club where you can actually take a more reasonable interest rate loan out and, I don't know, close out these punitive credit card debts? I mean, some of them are are getting close to
2: 30%, which should probably be illegal. Yeah. You know, there there was a study I saw that showed that better off folks, when they get credit card deals, they're often like nice deals and they've got airline miles and all these kind of benefits. And folks who are struggling often get deals which are like really low teaser starter rates that Mm -hmm. then, you know, go up to 30% or whatever it would be um, pretty shortly. And so the credit card issuers are
0: really taking advantage of this, Mm. this situation. Uh, this is the housing crisis all over again. Yeah. I mean, no, that's what caused the housing crisis with yeah, teaser rates. Teaser rates.
2: Yeah. No, it's it's definitely happening. You know, folks, I think, you know, instead of going to the lending club, they really are going to their own lending club, which literally yeah. which is, you know, friends and family.
0: I, I gotta guess say, we never consider that, Andrew. Hmm. Like we never can. I think like whenever we built this model of like basic one-on-one advice, it was always like you in a vacuum with no support network. and maybe we built it from the perspective of like, okay, you spend X per month, your minimum is Y. So you could take the the difference and start to build up that three times monthly savings. But I mean, when I think about it critically, I do know people who they are scrimping, by, you know, scrimping and saving. And there's not a huge gap of discretionary income. So Jonathan's got a great point. It could take you quite a while to build up that three month threshold. Um, but still, I do think like, you know, we're all about debt acceleration here and getting rid of your debt as fast as possible and, and refinancing it in smart ways. Is there like a a certain dollar threshold uh, or maybe maybe like a some sort of window depending on how many kids you have or how many dependents you have that you would say is like your safe point before you would want to start accelerating debt payments? Because I don't, I, I, my biggest thing is I don't want to put people in a situation where they are trying to pay off that as fast as possible with no safety cushion. If anything happens.
2: Yeah. For me, I mean, I'm not a financial advisor. Yeah. I like the idea of 500 bucks and I'd feel pretty comfortable if you felt like you had other resources you could draw on, mm-hmm. you know, that you could start paying down debt, um, faster. Okay. You know, Yeah. That's a big, big deal. I, Also, I I want to say something about saving that really struck me. It's like, you know, we do think about your savings accounts and say, look, you should, you know, once you're saving, you know, save up that emergency pot and then, you know, try to save more as you go along. The the view that financial advisors often give is, you know, that that should just be a part of your, you know, your usual monthly regimen, even like automate it, just make everything as automatic as you can. Mm Mm-hmm. But what we saw is that when you, you know, in a life of ups and downs where your income is bouncing up and down and you're having to recalibrate all the time, automation can be a real problem. And so that there's this saving activity, which, like Becky and Jeremy, you know, like, you know, why they ended up stocking their freezer with meat. Um, There's a saving activity, which is building up and taking down, building up and taking down. It's really active saving. It's a category that isn't emergency saving you know, which is like having money set aside for something that, you know, some rainy day thing that could happen. Yeah. It's, it's using that money that can smooth and protect. And it's stuff that you know, you've got to, you know, and maybe with a three month window or a six month window, but you know, you're going to use it. You might even have it like planned out from day one that you're going to need it, but we don't really have a language for that kind of saving and I'm, what we see is that folks don't pay enough attention to that sort of sort of short-term saving and dis-saving and
0: rebuilding and unbuilding. So do you mean like, um, your sister's got a wedding coming up in eight months. We need to save up money for the plane tickets and the hotel, like that kind of stuff.
2: That that's a one example of it. Christmas is another example of it. Um, but it also could be, you know, like a teacher doesn't get paid during the summer so she's got to save up
0: okay um, gotcha you know,
2: yeah for summer there's a lot of ups and downs in a world of ups and downs you need to you know think about the, pre- the predictable ones
0: so just being able to look ahead and, and ask yourself like what's coming up in the near future that I can be mindful about and start planning for now
2: yeah exactly yeah you know, we so of our 235 households we asked them you know we said look we see all of your checking accounts we see all of your savings accounts and we asked them you know how, what was the time horizon for the money in those accounts? And, you know, you'd think it might be five years, 10 years, Mm -hmm. but I think, I think about three quarters of the money in the, those accounts was targeted to be spent within a year.
0: So it's basically like every dollar is almost already earmarked for short-term spending. Yeah. Okay.
2: And, and has to be in a world of sort of ups and downs,
0: but we don't really have the, the kind of language for it yet. I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, Andrew, how is how would you say yours is? Because don't you take most of what's not earmarked and kind of put it into, into longer-term savings?
1: Yeah, so um, we we also are not on, like, the... Uh, we, we've kept our spending pretty low. So uh, there's a big buffer, and we've always been... Laura came from a frugal family. So did I. And I think... Uh, the trap is at least when I think about my income, I think about the peaks and almost assume that I'm at that level. Where perhaps if you, you know, were real or, or even pessimistic and thought your income was at the troughs, like the lows, uh, then all of the upside is something that you could save.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That yeah, totally just- makes sense. I was just thinking about my own checking account. I'm like, yeah, most of the money in there is usually earmarked for something else. But I suppose the difference is, you know, with a lower income family, maybe they don't have as much of long term savings. So it's really like all the resources that are coming in are earmarked for short term spending, which is it's it's a problem, isn't
2: it? Yeah, that's the story, really. I mean, it's like we were saying earlier, it's like incomes have not been rising, Mm -hmm. but the costs of college and housing and all that have been rising. And so households are really being sort of trapped without much slack.
0: Yeah, so exactly.
2: Those peaks were oftentimes to like pay down debt rather than, you know, put money in a savings account.
0: Yeah. So before yeah. we wrap up on um, one last question, did, did you notice any families actively doing anything to uh, shore up that, you know, that problem where the income isn't rising?
2: Well, it's interesting. So, you know, Jeremy, who I mentioned right at the top, who's the truck mechanic and facing Mm -hmm. those ups and downs. After our study ended, we went back to Ohio, we're talking to Becky and she's like, you know, Jeremy switched his job and he moved to another job 45 minutes away. And it was like, why would he move to another job a longer commute? And she said, you know, it even pays less than the old job, but it has guaranteed hours guaranteed Uh, paychecks. mm -hmm. And so that was really striking to us. He moved to another job, paid less, worse commute, but it was steady. And so, you know, some folks are making choices like that.
0: So they prioritize security over more money.
2: Yeah. In fact, there's a a survey question, national survey question by uh, Pew Charitable Trusts. They asked, you know, sample of Americans if they would, prefer more financial stability or moving up you know, the income ladder, moving a rung mm-hmm. up the income ladder, 92% of respondents said they would opt for more stability over more income.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's a big I, deal. I would have answered the opposite. So that is very interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I suppose peace of mind is something that you want above all else if you don't have it. So I guess that does make sense.
2: It's really hard when you don't have that platform to build from.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jonathan, this has been an awesome conversation. A lot to think about. I think Andrew and I have some one-on-one revamping to do maybe. (laughs) So thank (laughs) you for coming on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So do you have a, a website or anything where people can go maybe pick up the book or read some of your work, get in contact with you, anything like that?
2: Yeah, totally. So the book, um, it's called the financial diaries. It's on Amazon or your local, um, bookseller. And we've got a website, which is www.usfinancialdiaries.org. U.S. financial diaries.
0: Perfect. Well, we will have that link in the show notes. Also a link to the book on Amazon. if People want to go pick it up and read about the study in more detail. Uh, and unless you have anything else to add, Andrew, and start to close this out. Cool. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Our email is listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. So if you have any questions about this episode or anything personal finance related in general, definitely drop us a line and we'll see if we can get you an answer or uh, feature your question in a five questions episode coming up in the future. You can also go to listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox, where you'll find all of our favorite books, all of our favorite apps, budgeting resources, and other tools that can help make your financial life better. So thank you so much for listening. Check those resources out and we will see you next week. Later guys. Later, man.